0: Set in one of the most picturesque landscapes in Ireland, Sligo is surrounded by the Ox Mountains to the south, Knocknarray, with the tomb of Queen Maeve to the west, Ben Bulban to the north, and the long expanse of Lochgill to the east. The town grew around an important crossing point on the Garavogue River, on an ancient routeway between Connacht and Ulster. However. This strategic location became a double edged sword for the people of Sligo. The routeway brought wealth, merchants, visitors, pilgrims, and new ideas, but it also brought many marching armies who came to destroy. The name Sligo comes from the Irish Shligoc, meaning shelly place, as shellfish were once plentiful along the coast that lies west of the town. Indeed, The abundance of shellfish was a vital food source for people from the earliest times. From as early as the Mesolithic period, people collected shellfish along the Sligo coastline, leaving behind the many piles of discarded shells, known as middens, that still surround Sligo Bay. The Garavogue River played a key role in the development of the town, and has always been an important fishery, particularly for salmon, trout and eels. From January to September, it is possible to see people fishing for salmon along the Garavogue. Some believe that the bounty of salmon is thanks to a blessing bestowed by St. Patrick. In 1290, a Royal Charter was conferred on Sligo, granting it borough status and giving it the right to hold markets and charge tolls. This regular lucrative income ensured that the town was economically viable for the Anglo-Normans who settled here. Thanks to its strategic location, Sligo had developed sufficiently by the early 1400s to contain a castle, Dominican Abbey, a hospice, providing accommodation for pilgrims and visitors, and the parish church of John the Baptist, which later became St. John's Cathedral. Unfortunately, Medieval life was difficult and uncertain, as a series of wars, dynastic struggles and raids saw Sligo burned and plundered numerous times. However, the settlement of Sligo remained resolute, and each time it was destroyed, it was quickly rebuilt. The port of Sligo also contributed to the development of the town. It became well known as a trading port and exported herring and salmon from its thriving fisheries a well-known rhyme in Bristol at the time recalled herring of Sligo and salmon of Ban as made in Bristol many a rich man as well as salted fish chief exports from Sligo included hides and wool the port also imported goods to be sold in the local markets by the 15th century English merchants are recorded as trading with Sligo when ships from Bristol landed an assorted cargo, consisting of 20 urns of wine, salt, and packs of cloth. During the turbulent 16th century, Sligo was firmly in the grip of the Gaelic chieftains, but continued to thrive thanks to its trading port. Fairs and markets were well-established, and it is likely that the market centered around the Market Cross at the bottom of Market Street. Later in the 16th century, the English began to reassert their influence over Sligo. By the end of the century, County Sligo had been separated from the ancient Gaelic kingdom of Breffni, now County Leitrim. In the first half of the 17th century, Sligo entered a period of peace and prosperity. The town was one of the new municipal and parliamentary boroughs awarded corporation status by King James I in 1612. Though the early years of the 17th century were relatively peaceful, the authorities strengthened the defences of the town. They added town walls, the green fort and the stone fort, built in the latest defensive design. In those days of prosperity, many English and Scottish settlers came to live work and trade in the growing town. Sligo was fast developing as the principal settlement of North Connacht and even began to rival Galway as a trading hub. However, all this changed when Sligo was ripped apart during the rebellion of 1641 and took many years to recover. War struck Sligo again in the 1690s and led to a strong military presence in the town for decades after. At the beginning of the 18th century, Sligo returned to prosperity and became well known as the centre of commerce, law and justice. The population increased rapidly and the population of the county grew from around 35,000 in 1732 to over 70,000 in 1801, the growth being affected by a brief period of famine in 1750. During the 19th century, the town began to evolve and the windy medieval street pattern was supplemented with new streets and streetscapes. Throughout its history, the port and river have always been a constant vital artery flowing through Sligo. Both have greatly influenced the town and its people. Sligo also has an incredible cultural legacy which includes music, art and literature. It was home and a place of childhood holidays to the famous Yeats brothers, the painter Jack Butler Yeats and the poet William Butler Yeats. As well as these cultural icons, Sligo has also influenced many musicians and has a thriving traditional music scene renowned for its unique style. Comedian and author Spike Milligan, whose father came from Sligo, was extremely fond of his adopted town, and wrote humorously and affectionately about it in many of his works. We will begin our journey through Sligo's story on Key Street at the handsome Town Hall. Key Street is one of the oldest quarters in Sligo. It was the likely position of the original medieval castle, though no visible traces of this fortress remain today. According to the Annals, The castle was built in 1245 by Maurice Fitzgerald. The castle and Sligo itself were captured and recaptured numerous times throughout the medieval period in a deadly tug of war between the Anglo-Norman forces and the Gaelic chieftains. In Luttrell's map of 1689, Key Street appears as a short street with a stone fort depicted on the eastern side. The stone fort was a small quadrilateral or star-shaped fortress built in around 1646 by the Crown forces to fortify Sligo in the aftermath of the Rebellion of 1641. The fort was built on the river near the harbour to offer protection to shipping and the port. The stone fort and the green fort, another large 17th century fortification located in the northeast of the town, would prove their worth during the Williamite Wars of the 1690s, a brutal conflict between the supporters of James II, known as Jacobites, and William of Orange's forces, known as Williamites. In 1689, the Sligo forts were reinforced and refurbished by General Patrick Sarsfield, a Jacobite commander. He refortified the town to such an extent Sligo was the last of the western garrisons to surrender after the Jacobite defeat in 1690. The grand town hall you can see today occupies the site of the old stone fort. Constructed in the Italian Renaissance style, its elegant stately form was designed to be a fitting reflection of the growing importance and wealth of Sligo and its port. As the town prospered, the provision of a town hall became a primary concern. In 1861, the site of the old stone fort was purchased by the corporation. The new town hall was designed by William Hague and the Crow brothers were appointed as the contractors. The beautiful building received glowing tributes when it was completed, as people were filled with pride that Sligo had such an outstanding building. Sligo Corporation held its first meeting in the Assembly Room of the Great Hall in 1872, though construction work on the Town Hall was not fully completed until 1874. The construction was a slow and costly affair, and cost more than twice the amount initially estimated for the construction, with the final bill a whopping £10,000, an absolutely astronomical sum for the time. The town hall became a focal point for public speeches throughout its history, with key political figures like Charles Stuart Parnell and Michael Davitt giving speeches to huge crowds. Many distinguished people have been proclaimed freemen of the borough of Sligo, including Countess Markovich, who rebelled against the Anglo-Irish landed gentry, the class into which she was born. For her part in the 1916 Easter Rising, She was sentenced to death but her sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. She was released from jail in 1917 and in July of that year she returned to this fine town hall to be made a freeman of the borough of Sligo. The iconic clock tower, now restored to full working order, was erected by the harbour commissioners. It gave the harbour master a bird's eye view over the ships entering and exiting the port. The Town Hall was extensively refurbished in 2000 as part of the Millennium Project for Sligo. Today, it is one of Sligo's most instantly recognisable buildings and one of the finest town halls in Ireland. When you are ready, please proceed towards Wine Street, turning left onto Lower Knock Street. The Yates Memorial Building is beside Hyde Bridge on your right. The handsome red-brick building beside Hyde Bridge is now a memorial to William Butler Yeats. It was constructed in 1895 by the Belfast Banking Company. It remained in business until the early 1970s when it became part of the Allied Irish Bank Group. In 1973, the building was gifted to the Yeats Society. The famous Irish poet William Butler Yeats Remains one of the most important figures in Irish and British literature. He was the first Irishman to be awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature for what was described by the Nobel Committee as inspired poetry, which in a highly artistic form gives expression to the spirit of a whole nation. However, Yeats is widely considered to have produced his greatest works after he was awarded the Nobel Prize, with works such as the Winding Stair and other poems, and The Tower. One of his most loved poems is The Lake Isle of Inish Free. I will arise and go now and go to Inish Free and a small cabin bill there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honey bee and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, For peace comes dropping slow, Dropping from the veils of the morning To where the cricket sings, There midnights all a glimmer, And noon a purple glow, And evening full of the linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, For always night and day I hear lake water lapping With low sounds by the shore. While I stand on the roadway, or on the pavement's grey, I hear it in the deep heart's core. Yeats is inextricably linked with Sligo. Though born in Sandymount in County Dublin, his mother, Susan Mary Polluxven, was part of the well-known Polluxven family who were merchants in Sligo. Soon after Yeats was born, the family moved back to Sligo and young William came to think of the county as his childhood and spiritual home. Its landscape became both literally and symbolically his country of the heart. Yeats became interested in the cause of Irish nationalism through his deep-held belief that freedom should not be born of violence. In his compelling poem, Eastern 1916, He wrote of his feelings in shock at the callous execution of the leaders of the Easter Rising in Dublin, composing the famous refrain, All changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. He had an incredibly prolific career as a writer of the highest possible distinction and served two terms as a senator in the Irish Shannad. He died in Menton, France, on the 18th of January, 1939. He was buried after a discreet and private funeral in France, as his final request had been, if I die, bury me up there at Rockbrune, and then in years time, when the newspapers have forgotten me, dig me up and plant me in Sligo. His wish was granted, and in September 1948, His remains were reburied at Drumcliffe, County Sligo. The words of his epitaph are taken from the last lines of Under Ben Bulban, one of his final poems. Cast a cold eye on life, on death, horsemen pass by. Hyde Bridge, designed by Sir John Benson, was constructed in 1852 it replaced the Old Bridge, which had spanned the river for centuries. Originally named Victoria Bridge after the English Queen, it was renamed Hyde Bridge in honour of Dr Douglas Hyde, who became the first President of Ireland in 1938. The Old Bridge was probably built by the Normans under Maurice Fitzgerald, though the river was almost certainly spanned by an older wooden bridge built by the native chieftains of the region to secure the vital routeway and ford of Sligo. When you are ready, please continue to Hyde Bridge and cross the road using the pedestrian crossing, continuing straight onto Stephen Street. Stephen Street is one of Sligo's finest thoroughfares and is lined with some beautiful buildings like the fine commercial banks, legal offices and the library. Stephen Street was named after a wealthy 17th century Sligo magnate, Edmund Stevens. By the beginning of the 19th century, Stephen Street was home to many banking establishments. On the opposite side of the street, is the handsome Ulster Bank, designed in the classical style and constructed of striking red sandstone. During the War of Independence and the Civil War which followed, the Ulster Bank was occupied by Free State troops and was badly damaged when a bomb exploded during an attack by irregular troops. Despite this, the offices of the bank and its day-to-day running continued uninterrupted. If you look closely at the facade of the bank near the Yeats statue, you may discover bullet holes from the days of violent struggle at the dawn of Irish independence. Outside the Ulster Bank is a fine bronze statue of William Butler Yeats created by Rowan Gillespie. The statue was unveiled in 1989 by Michael, the son of W.B. Yeats, on the 50th anniversary of the writer's death. The Sligo County Library and Museum, also on the opposite side of the street, is housed within the former Congregational Church and manse. The church was opened for worship in 1851, however falling congregations meant that it closed in the 1940s. In 1952 Sligo County Council bought the church and transformed it into a library. The foundation stone for the adjoining manse was laid in August 1862 and it was completed shortly after. Today, it houses the Sligo County Museum where you can see artefacts like the Nobel Prize for Literature awarded to WB Yeats and other fascinating items from Sligo's past. On your right, you can also see the Grand Bank of Ireland building which was constructed in 1891 in the classical style. At the end of Stephen Street, on the left, we encounter another of the stately bank buildings. This is the Provincial Bank, built in 1880 and is now home to the AIB Bank. It was the first bank to open in Sligo and was designed by the noted architect Thomas Manley Dean. Constructed in the Renaissance style, the handsome facade uses beautifully carved Mount Charles sandstone from Donegal the side elevations of the bank are faced in Balassadar limestone. When you are ready turn right onto Bridge Street. Walk down Bridge Street to the new bridge that spans the Garavogue River. The new bridge was built between 1673 and 1682 to connect the developing northern side of the town with the commercial centre of Castle Street and Old Market Street. Built of cut limestone, it originally had seven arches spanning the Garavogue River. Looking upstream, you can see the former Lockgill Brewery on the left. In the 19th century, Sligo was well known for its breweries and distilleries with no fewer than five operating in the town. The Lockgill Brewery was the largest of these. The brewery was housed in a complex of handsome limestone buildings along the banks of the Garavogue River. After changing hands a number of times, the brewery closed in the early 20th century after it finally succumbed to pressure from the Guinness Brewery in Dublin. Looking further upstream, you can just see the spire of Collery Church of Ireland. This church was constructed in 1823 as St. John's had grown too small for the growing Protestant population in the town. More evidence of Sligo's industry can be found on the riverside of the Embassy Hotel. The stone and red brick arches at ground level were originally part of the linen hall that was constructed here in 1799. Linen production was big business and it was described at the end of the 18th century as the chief manufacturer of the county. The industry reached its height in Sligo in around 1820 but as the industrial revolution took hold machines and cheaper production elsewhere meant that weaving had largely disappeared by the middle of the 19th century. When you are ready use the pedestrian crossing to cross to the opposite side of the bridge. Continue straight onto Thomas Street before turning left onto Abbey Street towards Sligo Abbey. Sligo Abbey was founded in 1252 for the Dominican Order by Maurice Fitzgerald. The Dominican Order originated in France and were established by Saint Dominic at Toulouse in 1215. They were known as the Black Friars due to the black-coloured cloaks the monks wore over their white habits. The first Dominican foundation was at Athenry in County Galway in 1241 before the establishment of the Abbey at Sligo just over a decade later. Fitzgerald generously financed the construction of the Abbey and granted the land to the Dominicans. He also granted the friars land on the south bank of the river for agricultural purposes, along with fishing rights, as fish were a major part of the monks' diet. When it was first constructed, and up until the 17th century, the abbey lay outside the town. Today, the abbey remains in good condition, and we can see the north and south walls of the choir, the chapter room and the sacristy, all of which date to the 13th century. This period of Irish history was extremely turbulent as the resurgent Gaelic tribes sought to drive out the Anglo-Norman colonies. Sligo was burned to the ground by the warlike O'Donnells in 1257 and the Fitzgeralds left Sligo forever by the beginning of the 14th century. Throughout all of this upheaval and violence the Abbey remained untouched and when the powerful Richard de Burgo, Earl of Ulster, took control of Sligo in the 14th century, he restored the castle, and work continued without hindrance in the abbey. Sligo Abbey gained in prestige, and it became the burial place of the elite of the region, like the O'Rourke's, lords of Breffny. However, in 1414, disaster finally struck when a candle accidentally started a fire that became an inferno. The blaze destroyed the friars' living quarters and badly damaged the church. Immediate efforts were made to restore the abbey, and the Pope granted an indulgence to all who would help to restore it. The powerful local magnets, the O'Connors and O'Rourkes, provided most of the financial aid for the restoration. The magnificent east window and the distinctive central tower date to this period of reconstruction and renewal. Later the abbey was enlarged and enhanced by the extension of the nave and the beautiful cloister courtyard. A new threat to Sligo Abbey arose in the middle of the 16th century when King Henry VIII began the dissolution of the monasteries. But as it was deep within Gaelic control lands The abbey remained untouched for decades. However, in the late 1580s an English garrison was established in Sligo. In 1595 Sir George Bingham, president of Connacht, launched a number of attacks on Sligo Castle which at that time was occupied by the O'Donnells. Bingham used Sligo Abbey as a barracks for his troops and had his men pull down and use the beautifully ornate wooden brood screen to construct a battering ram to attack the castle. Remarkably, despite the chaos of these tumultuous days, a small group of the friars still remained at the abbey. By 1608, only one Dominican friar, Father O'Dwain, remained in Sligo. He died later that year, However, hope returned to the Abbey shortly after, when Father O'Crean, a Sligo Dominican who had been in Spain, returned to form a new community. He was aided by the new elites of society and nobles like Eleanor Butler, Countess of Desmond, who erected the O'Connor Memorial in the south wall of the church. However, this proved to be a brief period of peace as the 17th century quickly became one of the most violent in all of Irish history. In July 1642, in retaliation for the events of the Rebellion of 1641, Sir Frederick Hamilton, commander of the garrison of Manor Hamilton, descended on Sligo and burned most of the town, including the abbey, where he butchered the friars who remained there. W.B. Yeats dramatised this shocking event in The Curse of the Fires and the Shadows. All the monks were kneeling, except the abbot, who stood upon the altar steps with a great brass crucifix in his hand. "'Shoot them!' cried Sir Frederick Hamilton. But nobody stirred, for all were new converts and feared the candles and the crucifix. For a little while, all were silent." And then five troopers, who were the bodyguards of Sir Frederick Hamilton, lifted their muskets and shot down five of the friars. The noise and the smoke drove away the mystery of the pale altar lights and the other troopers took courage and began to strike. In a moment the friars lay about the altar steps, their white habits stained with blood. Set fire to the house! cried Sir Frederick Hamilton, and a trooper carried in a heap of dry straw and piled it against the western wall, but did not light it, because he was still afraid of the crucifix and of the candles. Seeing this, the five troopers, who were Sir Frederick Hamilton's bodyguards, went up to the altar, and taking each a holy candle, set the straw ablaze. Despite the slaughter, A small group of friars again tried to keep the old abbey alive and repaired the chancel roof and erected temporary shelter at the priory in 1698. In the early 18th century, it appears that the friars had finally left the abbey. Now abandoned, the abbey was the property of Lord Palmerston and was frequently used as a convenient source of building materials and stone. During the 1760s, local merchant Thomas Corcoran used the abbey as a quarry to provide materials for laying out his new abbey, Mall. though the prior eventually managed to have the destruction stopped. In 1763, the Dominican friars officially left the site of the old abbey and they constructed a small thatched chapel at the rear of Pound Street, now known as Connolly Street, where they remained until 1848. The abbey continued to be used as a burial ground for the Catholics and occasionally Protestants of Sligo long after the friars had left. However, the devastating cholera epidemic that swept through Sligo in the 1830s put extreme pressure on the abbey burial ground. There was barely enough soil to cover the coffins and fresh earth had to be transported in, raising the level of the graveyard. The huge numbers of burials in the small grounds of the Abbey only exacerbated the outbreak of disease, as the water runoff from the graveyard flowed back into the river and into the town's pumps, contaminating the water supply. The Abbey and the Protestant graveyard at St John's were also overflowing in 1846, just before the worst year of the famine. Coffins in the Abbey were visibly jutting out of the ground and there wasn't enough soil to cover them. Under such pressure, a resolution was passed in 1847 that opened a new cemetery for the town, catering for both Catholics and Protestants. Today, Sligo Abbey is under the auspices of the Office of Public Works and you can enjoy a tour of the site from April to October. When you are ready, Please, retrace your steps back to the junction of Thomas Street, Castle Street and Teeling Street. From here, you can look down the length of Castle Street to view one of the oldest thoroughfares in Sligo. Castle Street is one of Sligo's oldest thoroughfares. It takes its name not from the original medieval castle which was located in Key Street but from the presence of a number of fortified houses in the late 16th and 17th centuries. These fortified houses, while no longer visible, were the homes of rich and influential merchants. Similar examples that can still be seen today are Lynch's castle in Galway and Taft's castle in Carlingford. In Sligo, one of these fortified houses stood at the corner of Castle Street and Teeling Street. It was called Crean's Castle after the family of wealthy merchants who lived there. The Creans are thought to have arrived in Sligo from Donegal and they quickly became one of Sligo's most preeminent families. Andrew O'Crean became the first prior of the Dominican Abbey in Sligo before rising to the powerful position of Bishop of Valfin by 1562, a position he held for more than 20 years. Another fortified house, Jones's Castle, home to Sir Roger, the first provost of the town of Sligo, stood on the corner of Abbey Street and Teeling Street. These fortified houses were constructed of stone and had thick sloping bases they offered security as well as comfort and their defensive construction offered protection at times of unrest. The castles of Crane and Jones were described by a French traveller to Ireland in 1644. The castles are houses of the nobility consist of four walls extremely high thatched with straw but to tell the truth They are nothing but square towers without windows or at least having such small apertures as to give no more light than there is in a prison. They have little furniture and cover their rooms with rushes of which they make their beds in summer and of straw in winter. They put the rushes a foot deep on their floors and on their windows and many of them ornament the ceilings with branches. By the end of the 18th century, Jones's castle had disappeared from the streets of Sligo. Preen's castle was also demolished shortly after the 1798 rebellion. The name, Castle Street, is all that is left of these once proud fortified townhouses. In the early 19th century, Sligo Corporation began a program of reconstruction on Castle Street Demolishing many of the old buildings to help create a wider street with new three and four story premises. Castle Street became the premier business street of Sligo, with businesses like apothecaries, bookbinders, publishers, shoemakers, cabinet makers, gunsmiths, and clockmakers. When you are ready to continue our tour, make your way from Abbey Street and turn left onto Teeling Street. Use the pedestrian crossing to cross to the other side of the street and continue up Teeling Street towards Sligo Courthouse on your right and Old Market Street. Prior to the construction of this fine courthouse A series of session houses, or courthouses, were recorded in Sligo Town on Castle Street, Old Market Street and High Street. These were all superseded by the construction of this monumental building on the site of its predecessor in 1879. Its grand edifice, in the French Gothic style, is dressed with sandstone from the Mount Charles quarries in County Donegal. The official approach to crime and punishment has changed much through history. In the late 18th and early 19th century, petty criminals found guilty of a minor offence often found themselves in the pillory. They would have their head and hands passed through wooden boards, securing them in position. Often, a placard detailing their crime was placed around their neck. Being trapped in this position for hours would have been extremely uncomfortable as it was, but crowds would often gather to abuse and mock the offender. These crowds usually wanted to make the criminal's experience as unpleasant as possible. In addition to being jeered and mocked, those in the pillory might be pelted with rotten food and eggs, mud, offal, stones and excrement. This punishment has obviously resonated through the centuries as we still use the expression pilloried to describe someone who has been humiliated. A less severe version was called the stocks. The criminal was restrained by passing their legs through wooden boards, trapping them in a seated position. As late as 1840, Sligo's stocks were still to be seen in the hall of the old courthouse. During the 19th century, Sligo bore witness to many famous court cases including the murder trials of Matthew Phibbs, known as the Ballymote Slasher in 1861, John McDade in 1875 and Angelo De Lucia and Jane Reynolds who were accused of murdering De Lucia's wife. However, the most famous trial was known as the Sligo State Trials. One of the defendants, Michael Davitt, gave a speech at the first meeting of the Land League at Gurchin in 1879. He was arrested two weeks later to face charges of sedition for the anti establishment tone of his speech. Davitt was a key political figure of the late 19th century and a vigorous campaigner for tenants' rights. The trial turned to farce and the prosecution's case completely collapsed to the great embarrassment of the government at the time. Old Market Street was once known as Correction Street, as it had a house of correction located near the present courthouse. It was also known as Jail Street, from an old jail that was incorporated into the courthouse in 1878. When you are ready, ...continue uphill along Old Market Street, turning right onto High Street and down the hill towards the Dominican Friary on the left. High Street was named due to its elevation over the rest of the town. The block formed by High Street, Market Street and Old Market Street forms the true historic core of Sligo and the street pattern has changed little since the 16th century. The Church of the Dominican Order, on your left, was built in 1973. It replaced the beautiful Renaissance Gothic-style Dominican friary of the Holy Cross, known as the New Abbey. It was designed by Sir John Benson and built in 1848. It was one of Sligo's best-known buildings until its unfortunate demolition in 1971. Fortunately, the lovely apse of the old church has been preserved at the rear of the modern building and is well worth seeing. In the 19th century, High Street was lined with merchants' shops and numerous inns and hotels. When you are ready, continue down the hill from High Street onto Market Street and the former site of the Market Cross. By the 1650s, the bottom of Market Street was a well-established gathering place which accommodated weekly markets. The Market Cross was erected by Bishop Andrew O'Crean in 1570 as a centrepiece for the triangular space at the bottom of Market Street. The markets would have been noisy and vibrant affairs where you could buy food, tools, utensils, clothes ...and the luxury imported goods that had entered the port of Sligo. The statue of Lady Arne was erected in the memory of the young men... ...who lost their lives in the rebellion of 1798. It stands on the site previously occupied by the Market Cross... ...which was removed in antiquity. The Lady Arne statue was designed by Herbert G. Barnes from Dublin and it stands over 16 feet tall. She is carved of Sicilian marble and is depicted wearing a Phrygian cap, a symbol of liberty. In her left hand she holds a loosely draped flag depicting a harp and cross and the date 1798, while her right hand is raised to symbolize defiant rebellion. Broken chains lie at her feet as a potent symbol of the destruction of the chains of bondage. The statue stands on a limestone pillar with three decorated panels. The first panel states, In loving memory of the heroism and devotion of the patriots of 1798, who fought and died for civil and religious liberty in Ireland, erected by the Nationalists of Sligo, 1898. The second reads, The foundation stone of this memorial was laid on the 8th of October 1898 by Alderman P. A. McHugh, M. P., Mayor of Sligo, 1898. And the third, the unveiling ceremony was performed on the 3rd of September 1899 by E. J. Tighe, Mayor of Sligo. When you reach the bottom of Market Street, turn left onto Grattan Street. Continue on towards John Street, passing O'Connell Street, heading towards the ancient church of St. John. The original chapel of St. John the Baptist is thought to have been erected in 1242 and was referred to as the Hospital of Sligo. Rather than a place to treat the sick and injured, a medieval hospital or hospice was a guesthouse, a place that provided food and shelter for pilgrims. This hospital was destroyed during the wars between O'Donnell and the Normans, which lasted until the 1250s. It is likely that St. John's was constructed in the early 14th century in around 1311, when the castle of Sligo was reconstructed by Richard de Burgo, the powerful Earl of Ulster. Under de Burgo, Sligo became an important military town and a parochial church suited the needs of the garrison much better than a conventional monastery. Few records survive that tell us about the history of St. John's until the late 16th and early 17th century. St. John's appears on a map of 1589, and in 1615 it was noted that the church had been recently repaired. A new mortuary chapel was added in around 1637 by Sir Roger Jones, Provost of Sligo. Sir Roger was a former soldier and a leading Anglo-Norman merchant. After his death in 1637, he left the following instruction in his will. My body I commit to the earth. In my tomb in the chapel I lately erected in the parish of St. John's in Sligo. His tomb was covered with a fine effigy depicting Sir Roger and his wife, Lady Mary Jones. When workmen were conducting major alterations to St. John's in 1884, they discovered the foundations of a semicircular shaped chapel that adjoined the eastern end of the church along with the skeletal remains of Sir Roger and his wife. The memorial effigy had been moved to outside the southern wall of the main body of the church when the chancel was built in 1812. It was later moved again into its present position in the interior of the church and the remains of Sir Roger and his wife were reinterred in the churchyard. In the early 18th century, There were many changes to St. John's. The Protestant population of Sligo had outgrown the small church, so plans were made to have it enlarged. The architect chosen was the famous German architect Richard Cassels, who had come to Sligo in 1730 when he was commissioned by the Wynne family to build Hazelwood House. Cassels is also responsible for the design of other iconic Irish buildings, such as Leinster House in Dublin, Powerscourt House and Ruspera House in Wicklow. When Castles came to redesign St. John's, he found it to be a long plain nave with a sanctuary and altar at the eastern end, with a tall square tower that probably dates back to the 14th century. It is not certain whether Castles had the entire body of the original church demolished leaving the medieval tower still standing, or whether he simply extended and altered the main walls. It is likely that the former explanation is probably what happened, that castles demolished the old church, leaving the tower standing, and replaced the body of the church with the new octagonal chancel. The church was dramatically altered again in 1812, when it was redesigned, to be more in keeping with the fashionable neo-gothic style architecture of the time. In 1961, as the Protestant Church of Ireland population in Connacht had begun to decline, the Cathedral of St Mary in Elphin town was closed and the diocesan see was moved to Sligo. St John's was raised to the status of cathedral and was renamed The cathedral of saint mary the virgin and saint john the baptist today saint john's is one of sligo's finest architectural gems and is the oldest building in sligo that still serves its original purpose when you are ready continue along john street towards the cathedral of the immaculate conception a side gate on your left leads you up steps towards the back of the cathedral. Continue in a clockwise circuit around the cathedral to reach the main entrance. The magnificent Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception was constructed in 1875 after the Catholic Bishop of Alphine, Lawrence Galluli, commissioned the eminent architect George Goldie to design a cathedral that was worthy of Sligo's growing importance. Prior to Catholic emancipation in 1829, the Catholic population of the Diocese of Alfin had been without a cathedral due to the Reformation in the mid-16th century and the subsequent harsh penal laws that had deprived Catholics in Ireland of religious, political and civil rights for centuries. The money needed to construct the cathedral was raised by Bishop Killooly, who vigorously campaigned to raise funds, informing all the parishes in Elfin that he was "...about to erect a Catholic church in Sligo, worthy of our town and this important diocese." The Catholic merchants, traders and people of Sligo have now an opportunity of bearing testimony to that love which finds a dwelling in every Irish Catholic heart. When the donations had been gathered, the contract to build the cathedral was awarded to the architect George Goldie, who designed the cathedral in the neo-Renaissance Romanesque style. It took around seven years to construct the main body of the cathedral. The fine tower One of the most instantly recognisable landmarks of Sligo was finished three years after the main body of the cathedral was constructed. It stands over 70 metres or 200 feet high and is flanked by two smaller turrets that house spiral staircases that allow access to the galleries and choir loft. The interior of the cathedral is an incredibly beautiful and atmospheric place. Perhaps most breathtaking are the wonderful stained glass windows. Sixty-nine windows illuminate the interior in incredible colours. They were produced in the mid-nineteenth century by the renowned Lublin de Tours in France, the leading creators of stained glass on the continent. The windows in the nave are slightly darker in colour and mainly depict biblical scenes, while those in the high nave walls are plainer. The five windows in the apse behind the altar beautifully depict the great saints in vivid colors of red and blue. Christ and St. Peter are depicted in the center, with the others depicting Mary and Joseph, Saints Luke and Paul, St. Matthew, St. Asicus, and St. John the Baptist. The lower windows in the ambulatory surrounding the altar and baptistry represent St. Lawrence, St. Patrick, St. Augustine, St. Vincent de Paul and St. Agnes. The windows are at their best in the summer evenings as the effect of the coloured light washing over the wood and brass furnishing is truly wonderful. As well as being aesthetically beautiful, the cathedral is also renowned for the sound of its wonderful bells. Indeed, there is an old saying, you know you are in Sligo when you hear the chimes. The peal of Nine Bells, the largest, weighing nearly one and a half tons, was erected in the tower in 1876. It was made by Murphy of Dublin and donated by Peter O'Connor of Sligo. As you leave the cathedral, you can see the handsome Galuli Hall across the street. Built in 1885 by local architect P.J. Kilgallen of Abbeville, it was constructed to commemorate the late Lawrence Galooly, Bishop of Alfin. When you are ready, leave the cathedral from the main entrance, walk towards the street, and turn right onto Temple Street. At the next junction, Continue straight onto Adelaide Street. Adelaide Street is one of the more recent additions to Sligo Streetscape. It was laid out in around 1813 as an early form of bypass as it connected the busy Temple Street and Keys area. The street was named in the mid 19th century after Princess Adelaide, the wife of William IV who was King of England from 1830 to 1837. Throughout its history, Adelaide Street has been a place of business and trade rather than a residential street. At the end of Adelaide Street, you can see the very distinctive Western Wholesale Company building, now used as a solicitor's office. It was designed by John Lynn, a local architect and builder, and constructed in 1858 for the Middleton and Pollocksfen Shipping Company, who owned the largest fleet of merchant ships in Sligo. It is said that William Polluxven used to watch his ships coming and going from Sligo Port, from the small turret on top of the building. The principal exports from Sligo in the mid-19th century were corn, butter and provisions, while the main imports were iron, timber, salt and exotic goods from far-flung places in the British Empire like the West Indies. By the 1860s, the shipping company had begun to invest in the latest steam-powered ships and set up the lucrative Sligo Steam Navigation Company. This catered for the seemingly endless stream of passengers emigrating from Sligo. The early 1860s saw the highest emigration figures since the Great Famine. In 1864, it was recorded that as many as 400 per week were leaving Ireland to sail for America and Canada. When you are ready, please continue walking to the end of Adelaide Street, then turn right onto Wine Street. Wine Street takes its name from the wine vaults that stood at the corner of this street and O'Connell Street. The Methodist Church, or Wesley Chapel, on your right, was constructed in 1832. It was the third Methodist Church in Sligo. The first was built in 1775 as a small patched chapel on Bridge Street, which by 1802 had become too run down and small for the growing Methodist population in Sligo. The current building was designed by the architect Mr. King of Ballymote in the fashionable Georgian style with a neat limestone facade. Inside was a small gallery with wooden pews and a preacher's box. It was designed to hold up to 1,300 worshippers. Sligo was one of the early strongholds of Methodism and the founder of the Methodist church, John Wesley, Visited Sligo in 1757. He was to return regularly, 14 times in all, in the middle of the 18th century. On his visits, he preached in a number of different locations, including the market house and the old courthouse on Teeling Street. On one occasion, while travelling to preach in Sligo, his horse drawn coach became so badly stuck in the mud of the unpaved road that Wesley had to be carried over the morass on the shoulders of a stalwart peasant, while the crowd, by sheer brute strength, dragged the coach through the quagmire. When you are ready, at the end of Wine Street, turn right back onto Key Street towards the town hall and the end of the Heritage Trail. We hope you have enjoyed your tour through Sligo's story. There are many more fascinating places in Sligo Town to discover. Why not take a walk along the Mall to see the Model School, home to the Nyland Art Collection, featuring works by John and Jack B. Yates, Estella Solomons, Paul Henry, Louis Labrocki and others. Next door you can see the striking architecture of the Masonic Hall and Callery Church of Ireland opposite. Nearby you can also take a walk to the Green Fort, another part of the legacy of Sligo's turbulent 17th century. These grassy earthworks provide an elevated panorama of Sligo and the surrounding landscape and are well worth investigating. This audio guide by Abarta Audio Guides was produced in conjunction with Sligo County Council and was funded by the Heritage Council and Sligo County Council. To find out more about Sligo, please visit www.sligo.ie. Gunairi Amboharlath. May the road rise to meet you.